Lord, we hear these words of pain and anguish from the lips of Job. And Lord, we, we want to learn. We know that we are not masters at suffering. And do, we don't want to be masters at suffering, but Lord, suffering does come. And Lord, we want to learn from you. We want to grow in our understanding, Lord, what it means to be a follower of Christ who is also struggling in the midst of suffering and seeking to, to honor you through it all. And so, Lord, allow us to, to give freedom to you to minister to our souls through this text. And, Lord, what we, what we are not, would you make us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? And, Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? We ask now in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. With your Bibles handy, I would like for you to turn to Psalm 137 as we begin this morning. And I, I simply want to read the first few verses. And as you're turning there, let me just kind of set the stage for you. It's a psalm that recounts the story of God's people under judgment being taken prisoner to Babylon. Psalm 137, beginning at verse 1. By the, the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the, the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're saying we're a conquered people. We're being taken captive into Babylon. And we've been stopped now by, by these rivers near Babylon to, to get some refreshment along the way. We've hung up our instruments and our emotions are out of control as we remember. As we remember Zion, as we remember Jerusalem, we weep and we remember and we meet some more. The sorrow is deep in our souls, and we, we just cannot control ourselves. And then our captors, our tormentors, add insult to injury. And they demand that we sing, because they know that we, as children of Israel, are a singing people. And they know that we worship the, the God who created the earth. And yet, you're captive now. So go ahead and sing. Sing your songs. But how can we sing? How can we sing a song under such circumstances? How can we sing praises to our God when our country has been ravaged, our city destroyed, our children have been slaughtered, and we are standing in a foreign land we cannot sing. We won't sing. And friends, that is where we find Job in chapter 3. If you remember, there has been seven days of what? Silence. And in chapter 3 now, words are coming from his mouth. But they're not words of worship and praise. He's not singing songs praising God for his faithfulness, but they are words. 
their curses, their laments, their questions. So what happened? Why is Job's tune different than what we saw before in chapter one? Has he regressed in exercising his faith in God? Has he given up on God? Why the change? Now if we just do a little reflection on the story so far, we can say one of the reasons that is likely a change here, first of all, is this painful loss. He has lost much. If you remember, he was a respected rich man who had all sorts of uh, resources as well as a, a wonderful family. And he loses his possessions. He loses his children. He loses even his own health in an excruciating way. Maybe it's because of the seeds that were planted in his mind when his wife, in her own grief, encourages Job. Do you still hold on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And those words, as he's sitting there in silence, may have had some penetrative power into his heart. Up to this point, Job's response to his suffering has been an amazing display of genuine faith in his sovereign God. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We sang that this morning. Shall we not receive both good and evil from the Lord? I mean, these are, these are wonderful truth statements coming out of someone who's experiencing suffering. Or maybe it's these pitiful friends. They come, but when they come, they're carrying out all the rituals of a Middle Eastern funeral. They've torn their clothes. They've picked up ashes and scattered them over their heads. They've been sitting there for seven days of mourning. And friends, I don't know if you remember the story of, of Saul who rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead. And when Saul dies, those people of Jabesh Gilead are the ones who mourn for seven days. Even though they, they go and rescue him, they, 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 they mourn for seven days. And so these seven days is part of the mourning process of a funeral. So get this. It's as if these men come and Job is witnessing his own funeral servants. He's like a squirrel that's been squished on the side of the road and they view him as a corpse, as if he's already dead. And Job is a man without a future, without hope, without anything to look forward to except his immediate demise and death. Now, can you see the, the funnel of trouble that we've had in this story of Job? You see how it's, it's moved kind of like from the, the general and it's working now to a more particular place. He's, he's lost his possessions. He's lost his children. He's lost his health. He's lost relationship. And now as we turn to, to Job 3, he is losing hope. This is the anguish of his heart. He now begins to express his grief. And in this book, we've moved from narrative into the genre of poetry. And friends, quite frankly, this is where most people stop reading the book of Job. They kind of read chapter 1 and 2, and they look at the poetry and like, ah, I don't know about that. 
and they jump to the end of the book of Job and say, oh, I all got resolved in the end. Isn't that great? But they lose out on the beauty of what we're going to see now for the next 30-something chapters. Now, friends, poetry is hard. It is a lost art. In today's culture, the closest thing we have to it is like hip-hop, right? Or the spoken word. At least it's carrying it on. But you don't usually say, oh, there's a guy who's going to be reciting poetry. Why don't you come and listen to him? You know, it's like there might be two people there. It's not a popular thing anymore. But friends, poetry is the language of the soul. It's what songs are made of. The songs we sang this morning, the hymns that we proclaim, are first and foremost poetry. And poetry that has been put carefully and skillfully to music. And the best songs are the songs where the the poetry is is rich and deep and the music complements what's being said in that poetry. That's a hard thing to do. And so what we see in poetry is the heart of man laid bare. And when we read it, we we resonate with the struggles of that heart on display. And the struggle we see in Job right now was the struggle to make sense of his circumstances, his deep and severe suffering. So this morning, I want to say what we have before us is the heart of a true believer fighting for rest in the face of deep and severe suffering. Now I want you to notice how Job weaves two themes in this, this we call a, a, a lament ultimately. These themes of, of trouble and rest go through this book and ultimately end up side by side where he concludes in verse 26 and he says, I have no rest, but trouble comes. Here is a man in trouble looking for rest. It is a cry of anguish from the heart. Now, friends, is that where you find yourself at times? In the midst of trouble, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of anguish, longing for rest, longing for peace, longing for the hurt to be over. And friends, it begs a very important question for us, and that's this. Can a true child of God say the things that Job is saying in this chapter? Or is that a betrayal of what's really in his heart that identifies him as someone who's not a child of God? What was it we read in Jeremiah? Jeremiah says to God, you have deceived me. I have been deceived. Friends, when we go to the Psalms, the Psalms in themselves ask questions that come so very close to blasphemy. But what they are, are cries of anguish from the heart. People, godly people who are trying to sort out the circumstances that they are in. And there's a rawness that is there. And friends, listen, if we did not have the poetry, if we did not have the Psalms, we would be functioning kind of with this this cold, methodical kind of um, mechanism and framework. But the beauty is we have the Psalms. There's a a reality to the, the heart struggles that we go through. 
And so we have this wonderful privilege of going through now chapter 3 and on in the poetry and hearing the, the heart of Job in particular as he is wrestling with his circumstances. Now this particular chapter unfolds in three parts. The first part, you probably see it in your Bible, it's very clearly laid out. There's a curse, and it's, it's marked off by the words, or the word let, 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 let. And then, so that's verses 3 through 10. Then there's a lament, that's verses 11 through 9, and the question there is why, why. And then at the end, there's a separate question that is asked so there's these three sections, and that's how we're going to proceed, and then at the end, we're going to kind of reflect on all of it and consider what God has for us. So let's first jump into Job's curse, Job's curse. and the anguish and torment of his suffering, Job looks back at his life and curses the day of his birth and the day of his conception. Look at verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Now, friends, he does not curse God as Satan wanted him to or as even his wife was encouraging him to in the midst of her grief. But he comes right to the brink of doing this. He curses his day the day of his birth, the day of his conception. And friends, there's an irony here, isn't there? If you've been with us at the beginning, you'll remember in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Job's son would each celebrate on his day, which was his birthday. There's this great feasting and celebration in the family when they're thinking about the day of their birth. But now, Job opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. And friends, these two taken together, the day of his birth and the day of his conception, supply the foundation of his existence as a human being. So the word man, ultimately here in this, in this text, indicates a grown male in his strength and dignity as opposed to a child. These troubles haven't come upon some insignificant person these disasters have come upon a man of distinction, of greatness and dignity. It is here that we are introduced to how Job will describe his birth and conception. So just catch this from the text. The word day describes the day of his birth. The word night describes the day of his conception. And so this, this curse now is divided into two sections. Verse 3 lets us know the topics, his birth and his conception. Now each one is unpacked separately. So we have now the cur Job cursing the day of his birth. And he compares the day of his birth to a day of darkness. Not the kind of darkness that comes naturally because there's some clouds that come in, kind of like today. But a deep darkness that descends upon the earth. Let's pick it up at verse 4. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. This is the, the thick darkness that you would find deep in a cavern or in a, in a mine shaft. You guys ever been to the caverns up in Calaveras County? 
And, and you know, you go in there and they flip the lights off and you're just like, I, I mean, I really can't see a thing. You put your hand there, you have no idea. This is the kind of darkness that he's talking about. When the Gospels open in the New Testament, they speak about God who brings salvation and turns darkness into morning. In other words, light is coming out of that darkness. He brings light into the darkness. And Job's desire is that the powers of darkness would claim, uh, would lay claim, I should say, so that the day is turned from light into darkness. He wants to reverse the order of things. He wants to change what has taken place. He calls on the clouds to eclipse the light so that the day is terrified by the darkness. Life is so painful for Job that Job wishes that the roots of his existence had been recaptured by death and darkness, that he had never existed in the presence of God. He wants to to rewind creation and undo the part that led to his existence. Now, he's saying this all in a very poetic way. He's cursing the day of his birth, but he's also cursing the day of his conception here. That night, verse 6, let let thick darkness seize it. Let not rejoicing among the days of the year, let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. But those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let's just think through what he's saying here. The night of his conception had not been a night of darkness, but a night of of light and life. It was a time of, of life and sexual joy, a time when new human life sprang into being, a time when the amazement of God's human creation came into existence. But it is a time Job wished was thick darkness, the kind of darkness that descended over Egypt during the time of the Exodus, or the the, the night when Judas went out to betray Jesus. It is his wish that the thick darkness would seize the day, capture it, remove it from the pages of history. But far from being a barren night, it was a day that was joyful, full of cries of parents' lovemaking. But Job wants that night, that light, that joy removed and for it to be replaced by darkness. Now, friends, as a pastor, I have sat in my office when I've had one. um, It's just a side joke, right? Um, With couples who have longed for a night of joy, light, and life, who've struggled with the darkness of barrenness. Hoping that new life would end that sorrow. But in his grief, Job wishes that the night of his parents' joy would be removed. That darkness would rule over it. And so in order to do that, he brings an image, Leviathan, the sea monster of chaos, the enemy of the creator to interfere with God's design and somehow bring darkness on that day. What Job is saying in his curse comes from an anguished heart, but it's powerless. These things have already taken place. You can't go back and undo what has happened. It's only a literary expression of his heart, but his heart is full of feeling, full of torment, full of anguish. 
So he continues. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none or see the eyelids of the morning. Do you see what he's saying? There's, there's night, and, and with night there comes, there comes day, there comes the morning. And he's saying, I don't want the morning to come. I don't want the sun to rise up. I don't want the eyelids of, of, of that warmth to, 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 to bask over that night. Let it not happen. No sunrise, no light, no hope. Now why does Job wish that the day of his birth and the night of his conception would be forgotten or removed from existence. And now we home into the issue. Look at verse 10. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. The darkness did not stop new life at conception. It did not prevent his existence. Job's conception and birth opened the way for Job's trouble. That's what he's saying here. No birth, no conception, no trouble, no suffering, no anguish. Here the word trouble, he uses the word trouble and it speaks of Job's demise, his struggle, his, his plight. Now his friend Eliphaz says in chapter four, verse eight, those who sow trouble will reap the same. Again, Eliphaz says, man is born to trouble. Job himself speaks of nights of trouble, translated misery, same word though. Zophar, another friend, promises Job that if he repents, you will forget your trouble. And Job accuses his friends of being troublesome or miserable comforters. Now Job is longing for rest, we will see. But all he's known is trouble. He would never have known trouble if darkness had replaced his birth and conception. His grief, his sorrow, his suffering would not exist. Now, friends, his words are not, God, I hate you because I was born, but this hurts so much that it would be better to have not been born or even conceived. Now, friends, do you get what Job is saying here? And more importantly, when it comes to poetry, not only do you get what he's saying, but you begin to feel what he's saying. Poetry is supposed to, supposed to connect with your heart. Do you know what Job is talking about? Have you ever felt that way? Has the darkness of grief so overwhelmed you that you wish that your heart went places? Um, well, darkness is so grief, let me say it again here. That so overwhelmed you that, it, that, that your heart went places that you, you just know that it shouldn't have gone. But you said some things, you expressed some things in, the, in that moment. And you, you just wished that, that you had never been born. Now you may not have said it. But you thought it. Because the suffering, the pain, what you're going through is so hurtful. And you just want escape. You want Relief, And in those moments, we do say some things. We do utter words that may not be reality. And friends, this is not an isolated incident. It's not an isolated incident in Scripture. I want to just remind you of a man by the name of Elijah. He was a prophet of God, a very faithful prophet of God. And he was a man who stood for God over and over and over again. There was a time when <coughs> he basically had this this competition, if you want to call it that, with 400 prophets of Baal. 
to call down and consume an altar that was built. And he built his altar, he poured water on it, he prayed to God, and God came down and consumed it. And the 400 prophets of Baal, they built their altar, and they danced around, they cut themselves, they did all these things, but nothing happened. He was totally and completely successful and victorious in a demonstrable way, and yet when he heard from the queen Jezebel, after his time of, I might say, victory for God, that she was going to come and kill him, everything in him turned, and he runs off in a panic. Now, friends, this is what he ultimately says after running for a day. He comes to a broom tree, and he sits down, and he says, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. How is it that someone so mighty for God in one day can get to the place where they're saying, God, take my life away? These are dark times of the soul. Pain, suffering, heartache, fear can all drive a person to lose sight of what is real and to say, it is enough, it's just too hard. I just want relief. I want to be free from all of this. That's Job's curse. And from Job's curse now we move into Job's lament. Now what is a lament? A lament is a passionate expression of grief. I'm getting this from the Oxford Dictionary. It's a song, a piece of music, or a poem expressing grief or regret. In scripture, it often contains a crying out to God or a complaint about their circumstance. And they usually move from the cry or complaint into an assurance of being heard and then praise for who God is. So a full lament has all these elements. You begin in the sorrow and the grief and the suffering and the crying out, and you have this wrestling match, so to speak, that takes you all the way to the end until you're to the place where you realize again who God is and his promises and you're praising him again. That's just the, the flow of a typical lament. But we read a lament this morning to begin our services. And there was a little bit of, of Jeremiah trying to force his way up, but he still ends up in a bad way. Psalm 88 is a lament that has no resolve. It's just complaint, complaint, complaint. The psalmist is left in darkness. That's the nature of some laments, and that's really the nature of this lament. Job actually never gets to a place in this lament. It's just all lamenting. And this lament is written in two parts. Each part begins with a question. The question is why and ends with a description of that abode of the dead. We often call Sheol. So let's move now into the first part, part one of this lament. And here, what he's trying to, to ask is this. Why not death at birth? What we have here is a beautiful picture of new life. There's a movement from the womb to the knees and then to the breast. It's a movement of sustainable life. Verse 11, why did I not die at birth? Come out from my, the womb and expire. See the picture there? I was born alive, but then I die. Why did that not happen to me? Why did the knees receive me? And the idea there is the, is the mother sitting and bouncing that child on the knees or cradling that child on the knees. Or why the breasts that I should nurse? It's 
So Job is wishing that he could be another statistic, another child that dies soon after or immediately after birth. Job had traveled from his mother's womb to being lovingly cradled on his mother's knees, then to the, from the knees to the comfort of his mother's breasts. And again, it's a beautiful picture of life, of love, of nurture, but not for Job. This is all a disaster in his mind. This is misery, misery unbearable misery. So, so why life? Why not death? Rather than the joy of life, Job longs for the satisfaction of death. And he uses four images of rest. Look at verse 13. For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. So so why, why life? It would be better for me to have rest in death than be in the circumstances that I am right now. And of course, now the question is, who would be his resting companions? Notice verse 14 and 15. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Now this is a list of powerful men, kings, counselors, and princes. Kings, of course, refer to those who are seated in power. The counselors would be the senior ministers of state. The princes refer to powerful people, the kind of people who influence others in those particular countries. These are, you might want to say, the men who are powerful and influential in the city or in the country. In today's terms, they would be presidents, prime ministers, senators, congressmen and congresswomen, CEOs, billionaires, the kinds of people who exercise power, the kind of people who sway other people. And they're the kind of people, if you notice again, verses 14 and 15, they're the kind of people that, that build uh, on the ruins of cities. They, they, they are rich, they're powerful, they, they build up homes or, 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 uh, or structures in honor of themselves. But hear this, death is the great leveler. Because in the abode of the dead, you have people like Job and you have people like kings, and you have people like counselors and princes. You can't take your wealth and your power with you into the grave. And you say, I'd rather be there. Because that is rest. That is an escape for what I'm going through right now. Now, this will make more sense as we go into the second part. Look at part two now. Here we've moved from why not death at birth to why not stillborn? Why not be born dead? Verse 16, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? He's saying, I wish I had gone straight from the womb to Sheol, the place of the dead. And in this place, there are found two groups of people. And let's just highlight who those groups are. The wicked, the taskmaster, the great, the master. And then there's the the weary, the prisoner, the small, the slave. We find that in reading verses 17 through 19. Let's read that. There the wicked cease from troubling. And there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. 
and they, they hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there. The slave is free from his master. So it is the wicked that cause so much suffering on the earth. It's the taskmaster that reminds us of the, the cruelty uh, the, uh, of, of Egypt uh, over uh, the, the children of Israel, suffering under Pharaoh's hand. The master, of course, pictures here the oppression of, of the whip associated with slavery. Certainly Job is identifying himself not with one group, but with the latter group, the weary, the prisoner, the small, and the slave. Job is longing for rest, for freedom, for ease, for trouble to cease. So it isn't that Job actually wants to be with these kings, these counselors, and these princes, but he believes rightly that in Sheol, the place of the dead, they will no longer be able to torment and trouble him. He will be at rest. So if I had been stillborn, Job is saying, I would be at peace. I wouldn't have to experience the suffering. I wouldn't have any children or stuff that I could lose. I wouldn't be married or have any relationships that I would, I would have to struggle with. And I wouldn't have a body that suffers in such agonizing ways. Because I wouldn't have come into the world. And I would be in the grave. If we read the content of this book, we'll find that Job knows, however, that Sheol, or this place of the, the dead, is not a place of rest. It's a terrible place where the worm and decay are his mother and father. My friends, it's a reminder for us that in our times of distress, the things we know to be true can be distorted in our minds to satisfy the anguish of our troubled hearts. This is always a battle that rages when we're going through suffering. We may think things that are not true. We may say things that at other times when our minds are clear, we would not say, but they're all being driven out of our hearts because our trouble, our anguish, and our suffering is so great. So when you cannot understand why suffering is overtaken or when you are, are having difficulty comprehending why God will bring such trouble on someone who is so godly, when you have questions because of the anguish of your soul, you may think things and say things and even believe things that are in error but make you feel better in the moment. And this is one of the things we have to be careful about as we develop a theology of suffering. But friends, what Job is longing for in this lament is rest. And what is, the, what is the rest that he's longing for? Well, rest, friends, is being rooted in God and his completed and ordered creation. It is nestling into God, even when you don't understand, even when it's painful. Even when the hurt is so overwhelming, you wish you'd never been born. It's, it's resting. It's leaning on him. And Jesus speaks to that rest, doesn't he? We sang this this morning. It was part of one of the songs that we sang. But to the Jews, Jesus says this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Job wants to experience rest with God. But at this moment, 
Job 3, his experience is in the polar opposite direction of God's rest. This is a lament. It's a curse. And it's a lament. Why was I born? Been better if I had died after birth. It'd been better if I was stillborn. And now we move into Job's questions. Let's read it verse 20 through 23. Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hid treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? And friends, as you, as you get older, you move from being a person of the world maybe to interacting in the nation. From the nation, you move to the neighborhood and you stay in that territory. And from the neighborhood, maybe you, you move into the garden and into your home and ultimately into your bedroom and finally into a casket. I mean, there's a sense in which life finishes up being hedged in. And there's a picture here that he's talking about. Job is hedged in. He's trapped. He cannot escape. He has become a recluse in his suffering. And so some ways we want to unpack these these verses here. First of all, they include Job in every suffering person. These questions that he have in, has include Job in every suffering person. They're not just questions about himself, although they begin with him, but they also draw attention and bring into his experience all who suffer. suffer. And this is why he says, why is light given to him, that's singular, who is in misery, and life to the bitter, that's plural, in soul? That's a big question. Why is, why is life and why is light given to all of us? All who are in the grip of, of this bitter suffering. We're all together in this. Secondly, these questions describe what misery longs for. Did you catch that? Misery longs for death, but it does not come. It says here, they dig for death more than hidden treasure. <laughs> now, we here in California understand what it means for people to go digging for treasure. I mean, our whole state is built on that idea. You have these people that spend all this time hunting for treasure and finally find that nugget of gold and lay, lay claim to it. And when they get it, you know the picture. <laughs> That's the picture here, friends, because it says they rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they finally find the grave. Now hear this. This is, the, this is the, the relief that they get because they're suffering so much. They would rather find death and they would rejoice jumping up and down because they find it. Because the hurt is so much. Why? Because at least they're finally at rest. These questions then describe their circumstance. We have this idea of light and life. The light is the light of life. So why is the light or the life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Well, notice 
it says here that Job is hidden. And to be hidden here is the idea of being forgotten. It is a word that is used to describe being forsaken by God. And then he says he's hedged in. Now, isn't it interesting? When Satan comes to report to God about his comings and goings, and God asks Satan to consider his servant Job, Satan says, the only reason Job is serving you is because you have put a hedge of blessing and protection around him. Now, Job unwittingly speaks of God putting a hedge around him, but it's not a hedge to keep people out. It's a hedge to keep prisoners in. For Job, it's a hedge of suffering. It's a hedge of misery. He is wasting away in an Auschwitz-like prison camp. It's a hedge that calls trouble. And the only solution is to be at rest. He's trapped. He's hedged in. He cannot escape. Why is life... Why give life only to hedge it in? Why give light only to eclipse it with the darkness of suffering? Why give life only to imprison it in misery? It seems pointless that you would give someone life only to bring suffering. It seems like a waste. It seems unjust. And Job is asking, why do you keep wretched people like me alive? Now, isn't there a part of what Job is saying here that shocks you? I mean, is this the kind of language or the way that a follower of God should speak? This is not how we communicate in church, right? And if you're suffering, come and we'll sing some songs together. Woohoo! We'll, we'll cheer you up. We've got to be careful that we're not happy clappy. We need to be somber and thoughtful and centered on God. And there's, there's a time. If you notice the songs that we chose this morning, they were carefully chosen. And, and some of them moved from this place of suffering and, and wrestled their way up to God. There's a sense we need to encourage one another to move out of this darkness and, and up to God. But we've got to be careful, friends. We've got to be careful how we handle that. And there's many other questions that Job asks in this story. Let me just rattle some off for you. Chapter 6, verse 12. Do you think I am made of stone or metal? He's speaking to God. When was the last time you said that to him? Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, summarize it. If life is short, does it have to be miserable? Good question. 720, what did I do to ever become the target for your arrows, God? Chapter 10, verse 8, you are the one who created me, so why are you destroying me? Chapter 13, verse 24, why do you hide your face and count me as an enemy? Friends, one of the things we need to understand and appreciate is that God allows us to ask questions like that. We may be totally mistaken in our understanding. We may be asking the wrong questions. We may ask questions that come from faulty motives or from distorted theologies, but God allows us to ask them. Not only do they describe their circumstances, but these questions describe what comes upon Job. Notice what it says, verse 24. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. 
My groanings are poured out like water. We're told here that Job's daily diet is sighing. His daily quenching is groaning. As he continues to endure his suffering, this is what he's feeding on. This is the sighing is an idea of, of shrieking. It's the kind of sound you hear when in a third world country there is an earthquake and buildings have fallen on people and there is a mother and a father who've just found their child crushed in the rubble. That's the idea of this sighing. It's a wailing. The idea of groaning is a moaning. It's exhausted grief. It's the same word used to describe the cry of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt. It's the same word used in Lamentations 1, 4, and 8 to describe the abject misery in the heart of a defeated people. It's the same word that is used in the Psalm of David, Psalm 22 and verse 1. We find these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, that is fulfilled as Jesus hangs on the cross when he says to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It gives us a little window into what is happening in the heart of Jesus. That it's not just a mechanical thing of just going up and hanging, there it is. Jesus felt what we as humans feel. In verse 25, Job speaks about fearing what he most dreaded. If you remember in chapter one, after his, his children celebrate their day, Job the very next morning is offering sacrifices just in case there's a need to do that. He has a fear that something might have happened, and now his fear is realized. He says, for the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. It's come, and it's worse. And in verse 26, the whole of Job's speech comes to a climax, and we're given four words that express the cry of his heart. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. He's saying, I'm overwhelmed with trouble, suffering, and painful misery. I just want relief. I want it to be over. I want rest. Job's speech is over. It's a gloomy picture, isn't it? But friends, I, I think... We identify it. And there are times probably in our lives and in, in, in your life where this has been true. So with what we've looked at so far, as much as we want to press on what's going on with Job, let's, let's think through some of, uh, of this chapter and let's come to some conclusions that I think will be helpful for us. Number one, and this is so important, faithful Christians can and likely will have dark times of the soul. Oh, not me. Oh, yes, you. I don't know, I'm walking with God. Mm -hmm. I want to introduce you to Job, Elijah, Jeremiah, David, Asaph, 
Hannah, and even Jesus himself. There's a man by the name of William Cooper, spelt C-O-W-P-E-R, who in the late 1700s was greatly used by God to write poems that have been turned into hymns. Probably the most famous hymn that we at least sing, we are aware of, we sing typically on the Lord's Supper Day, and it is, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. But Cooper's life was a hard, dark, and sorrowful life. He came from a religious family, and I put religious in quotes here, and they were a family of means, but they were not evangelical at all. In other words, there wasn't a gospel presence. His mother died when he was six. And he was sent off to boarding school where he suffered at the hands of other young men who bullied him constantly and may have had a significant impact on his, on his outlook on life. Years later, after a two-year engagement, his fiance's father forbade the marriage and neither he nor she would marry. In fact, he would write poems under the name Delia that were like secret poems, so to speak, the Republic, but he, he'd write them and they were for her. He had often struggled with what he would, we would call a depressive or despondent tendency, and on more than one occasion, he sank deep into despair, so much so that he would just look out the window for days. And all this happened to a young man was not a follower of Christ. Then one day, his despondency and despair was so grave that he three times tried to take his own life and each time was unsuccessful. As such, he was confined to an insane asylum, what we would call a psychiatric hospital today. But the man in charge of that insane asylum was a man by the name of Dr. Nathaniel Cotton who was somewhat of a poet, he dabbled in it, but more importantly, he was an evangelical believer, a lover of God, and a lover of his gospel. And about six months into that time in the asylum, Dr. Cotton would leave Bibles in different places, but ultimately, Cooper would know the love and kindness of God and received the gospel. He would say of his conversion, unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. In other words, that relief, the end of my suffering would be over. My eyes filled with tears and my, my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with wonder and love. Soon after leaving the asylum, God's providence would bring William Cooper under the shepherding guidance of a man by the name of John Newton, who you know as the one who wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And Newton, of course, was a slave trader, converted, and ultimately became a pastor in a country town called Olney. Together, um, Newton wanted to minister to, to Cooper, who continued to have these times of despondency, and so he would spend time with Cooper, allowing him to write poetry, and then putting that 
to music. And as a result, there's this thing called the Olney Hymns. And out of that experience, he writes this wonderful hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. Now, friends, faithful Christians can and likely will have dark times of the soul, but God is still present. He's still faithful, and he's still working. Remember, the fact that you are struggling doesn't mean that God's character or his promises or his providence has changed. He is the same God, and he's committed to his children. And he will see that we press on in, he will see as we press on in this book that that is true for Job too. So the first thing that I think is important for us to remember is that faithful Christians can and likely will have dark times of the soul, but that is not necessarily the the end, and that doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. Secondly, our God is a patient God. Now, friends, this is something that you need to settle in your understanding of who God is before trouble comes. God is not a God who is an ogre. He's not trying to beat you down so that you have a horrible day. He's not trying to discourage you. He's not trying to be mean to you. He is a loving, gracious, patient God. God is so kind and loving and tender to listen to and endure the cries from Job's anguished heart. Just think about that. As you you hear what Job is saying, God is listening. And Job is, is questioning so many things. He's wishing he was not born, and God is enduring it. (laughs) And he's listening to it, because behind those words is a heart that is struggling, struggling to make sense of what's going on. Now, if we return back to the the life of Elijah and that story I mentioned to you, running from, from Jezebel, he's exhausted from running, and he's so despondent that he wants God to take his life, but God is so patient and pastoral with him, isn't he? He doesn't lecture him. He doesn't preach a sermon and say, Elijah, why didn't you stand there and stand up to Jezebel? He doesn't seek to incriminate him for his failures. No, he allows him to sleep. And then when he wakes up, he has provided for him food. I see, friends, sometimes we, we, we think everything is in a sense, up in the spiritual realm, disconnected from our humanity. And yet, pastorally, God deals with the spiritual through the real temporal stuff. God is patient with us. Aren't you glad for that? Now, having said, the facial Christian can and likely will have dark times of the soul Our God is a patient God. I want to say this. The best is yet to come. A theology of suffering always has as its backdrop, its backdrop, the certain knowledge that the best is yet to come. And we must truly believe it. We need to remind ourselves of it. We need to 
seek to, to, to face our trial in light of that reality. Here's just a, a couple of statements, just actually three of them. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Backdrop. Life is but a vapor. Backdrop. Jesus has gone on to prepare a home for me in heaven. Backdrop. And we could go on and on. So many statements like that in scripture. These are just a few of those wonderful truths that feed our hope and nurture comfort. It's good for us to memorize them, to remember them, to feed on them. But also, we must be ever so careful that we don't treat them in a light and cavalier manner when we are seeking to minister to those who are going through suffering. Someone is in Job's situation, you say, hey, Job, hey, just remember, Job, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You better duck, because a slap might be coming your way. We may not understand the extent of the suffering someone else is going through. We may not comprehend their suffering because we're just like, why is this such a big deal to them? It's a big deal to them because it's a big deal to them. It's their suffering. It's their struggle. So what we need is wisdom, not just knowledge. We may know the truth, but as we've talked about, we need skill in knowing when and how to minister that truth in the right way. Now, better yet, is to allow the person to dig into the well of their already established understanding and let them discover for themselves what they already know to be true and apply that. William Cooper is also known for a song that we don't sing, but one that we should. It's entitled, God Moves in Mysterious Way. And it's the fruit of his struggle Independence on the Lord. Now, I want to read through it here, and I want you to hear what he says. In light of what we've read this morning, in light of what we've read as far as Jeremiah is concerned, in light of even thinking of the Psalms, he says, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his brightest his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye your fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. That means unbelief will not understand the ways of God. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain God's mysterious ways are for William Cooper traveling through the dark times of his despair in what mysterious ways is God at work in your life in your struggle in your suffering in your despair 
I want to draw your attention to one stanza that has been for me a stanza of meditation and clarity and help. And that would be this one. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. I don't, don't think lightly about God. Don't just have a, have a diminished view of him. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. That's what Job is experiencing right now. He hides a smiling face. He is still at work. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Lord, help us today to marinate in what Job is experiencing. But Lord, may we also then pull in those truths that clarify your understanding of our frail condition. An awareness then of who you are, the kind of God you are, not an ogre, but a loving father who cares for his children, who's patient with them. And then, Lord, would you give us just this ability to comprehend what it is that you are doing in our lives and to see that this is a means by which you are ushering us through this life and ultimately into your presence. Behind, Lord, this providence, this frowning providence, Lord, you have a smiling face that cares about us, that is good, that is working your will. May we rest in you. May we find our hope in you. And Lord, would you be glorified and praised as a result of it. We ask in your precious name. Amen.